Hey everyone, welcome back to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence and clarity. Thank you if you come back each and every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. Please do subscribe if you love the show. It makes a massive difference. So recently I was on holiday and I saw at least three women around the pool reading this book called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Hmm. Interesting. What's that? I thought, well, it turns out the average person has just 4,000 weeks on earth. It doesn't sound like much, does it? So I read the book, trying not to freak out how many of the 4,000 weeks I had left and I loved it. And such is the joy of having a podcast. I now get to share the author Oliver's wisdom with you all. So Oliver Berkman is a best-selling author and keynote speaker. For many years, Oliver wrote a really popular column for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. You've probably read it. So this episode is about making the most of our radically finite lives in a world of impossible demands and relentless distraction. Gosh, I don't know if I've ever felt more seen from those two phrases, impossible demands, yes, relentless distraction. Yes, yes, yes. That basically describes my day to day. So Oliver shares with us a positive psychology that can help us overcome the overwhelm, make better choices and build a more meaningful relationship with time. And he says that time management doesn't mean becoming more productive. It means deciding what to neglect. And once we realize that we can never fit everything in, we actually then get the freedom to prioritize. This episode is for you. If you feel like there's never enough time, you're always running behind and you have an endless to-do list that you never get to the bottom of, this conversation might just be the most useful time management tool of all. I hope you love it. Here it is. Oliver, welcome. I'm so excited to chat to you. I was on holiday recently and I'm a sort of studier of people and I was looking around at what people reading, which I always do. And I noticed there was a disproportionate number of mothers reading your book. And that is why I thought I have to find out what is this book? Who is this man? What is he talking about? Why do you think that might have been? Well, firstly, I'm amazed. I I mean, amazed by how well the book has done. But even then, I have almost never seen somebody reading it in public in any situation. I guess I don't go around studying what people are reading. I should do that more. I don't know the reason why this stuff resonates with any specific people. But I think that, I mean, an obvious suggestion that I would make as a parent myself as well, is that, you know, I'm trying to get at this idea that certain of the standards that we hold ourselves to or the things that we tell ourselves we have to get through or do in order to be adequate and acceptable and good enough, that they're completely impossible. It's not that they're really, really hard and you're going to have to work 24-7 and buckle down in order to do all these things. It's that they are not possible. They are like making two plus two add up to five. It just can't be done. Just in terms of meeting all the social demands that are put on us, the things we want to do, the things we feel we are obliged to do. And obviously, I know that all of that you know, weighs incredibly heavily on mothers specifically. So I think there's something useful in sort of spelling out for people that they can actually drop this particular burden, not because like I'm telling them they can or not even because they should be nice to themselves, although they should, but just because it's just logically impossible. It's just ever expanding and it's infinite. And there's no point trying to get on top of an infinite amount of obligations and pressures. 
I've always felt this way, like there's not enough time. And yet becoming a parent, I personally think it just magnifies that by thousand in terms of everything that you have to do. And that's, I guess, where I wanted to start today with this idea that is so core to the book and your work, which is, as you were just sharing, you know, we cannot fit it all in. And I think we're sold this myth as parents, particularly that what we need to do is just be more efficient. We just need to figure out the hacks to be more efficient, to get it all done. What would you say if someone's sort of been trying to do that? Like, I've got so much to do and I'm, I'm trying to cut corners and be more efficient. You would sort of clean that whole slate up, presumably. Well, in a way, yeah. I mean, the thing is, there are a couple of ways into this. One thing I'd say is when you really understand that the incoming supply of tasks, of felt obligations, of things you might like to do, when you understand that that is basically limitless, basically infinite, then it becomes pretty obvious that that getting more efficient at getting through it is not going to get you to the end of it because infinity doesn't work that way. If it's an infinite supply, all that's going to happen, and I give one example in the book of email, right? If you get really, really good at getting through your email fast, well, you never get to the end of it because there's always more email. Actually, you make it worse because you reply to more people and they reply to you, so you get more emails. So efficiency in the context of a kind of limitless potential number of things to do is not going to get you there. It can be helpful in certain ways. Obviously, if it takes you an hour to locate your kid's coat before you leave the house, you probably could do with changing up that system so you know where the coat is kept. Fine. But as a path to this moment of peace of mind when you're going to be like, okay, I'm on top of everything. I'm doing everything that I need to do in order to think of myself as a good enough parent like that's not going to come through efficiency because you're trying to get through a supply of things that is effectively infinite and then the other side of it is just that living in that way i've found because i've spent years trying to do this right it sort of pulls you away from the experience of the life you're actually living so you end up sort of always thinking about the future always trying to figure out if you can fit in everything you need to fit in by a certain time and the effect of this is to miss out on the actual moments of the life that you're living. And, you know, I don't want to sort of try and make people feel bad for doing this, but ultimately I don't think it's a good way to parent either because, again, you know, ultimately your kid wants your presence and your attention rather than all the supposed benefits of being part of an incredibly efficient, well-run, clean and tidy household. I think that's why after I saw all these mum reading your book and went and read it myself, I think that's what I interpreted why it was speaking to so many mothers because it was freeing and liberating. You are never going to get to the end of all the invisible tasks that you have to do and the emotional labor around parenting and life and the juggle. And actually, when we're trying to get on top of all that, we're taking ourselves away from the very joy of having these children, which is, of course, being with them. But I find in my own life, I know all of this. Intellectually, I know all of this. And in my life, I'd say I've got a lot better at making those choices and sitting with the discomfort of the grief of the losses. I'm never going to do that. You know, I'm not going to get to that. But I feel like with my children, I'm like, but if I decline that party invite, because actually I'm at my capacity, is that going to impact their friendship? If I say, no, you're not going to do gymnastics and horse riding and piano because I don't have time for it in my life. I find it much harder to do knowing that it might impact their lives. And I was wondering your experience about this. As you said earlier at the beginning of this conversation, in some ways, I think all that motherhood, fatherhood does is just sort of turn all these issues up to 11, right? So with your 
finite time. You know, your time was completely finite before you had kids. But you could get away sometimes with tricking yourself that maybe it wasn't. And you can't trick yourself once your time is occupied like it is by children. You know, I'm always trying to argue that I don't think they're necessarily qualitatively different for parents than non-parents. It's just that they're sort of turned up to such an extreme that in a, it's useful because you get to see it and you have to confront it. And I think what you're pointing out there is really just a kind of, see if this makes sense, just a even more poignant and bittersweet and acute sense of the fact that life is just full of missing out on all sorts of things because there are so many more things you could do than you'll actually have time to do. So, the answer is not, no, I promise you it won't impact your child if they don't get to go horse riding. The answer, I think, is more like, absolutely it will. And so will anything else they do or don't do that you do arrange for them or don't arrange for them. Maybe the evening they spent indoors reading a book instead of going horse riding will turn out to have been more important and meaningful to their lives than horse riding, or maybe not. And you'll never be able to know. <laughs> and so, again, you're trying to sort of make an equation come out right that in a very real sense can't be made to come out right in the sense that we want it to, which means perfectly. There's actually liberation in seeing that that is just always going to be true. And then, of course, you know, you can bring all sorts of examples in about kids who get none of those opportunities and have rich imaginative lives as a result, or kids who have terrible things happen to them and are incredibly resilient in the face of them and grow as a, you know, there's, there's all sorts of sort of specific arguments about like, don't worry about that thing. Don't worry about that thing. But it's part of this bigger situation, which is like, yeah, it would be great in some ways if there was an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of energy, but there just isn't. What I got from your whole book actually was just like a surrender and an acceptance. There's only so much we can do. Your job is to figure out what are those meaningful, important things. And I'm wondering, how do we go about that? You talked about an example of writing a list of 25 things and, and you've got to watch the middling priorities. What are some of the really useful tools that you've used and you talk about in the book to figure out, okay, so we can't focus on everything, got it. What do we focus on? I think there are tools and I happily talk about them. I do think that ultimately this is a very intuitive question. It has to be, you know, where does it feel like the life energy is, you know, some sort of vague question like that. It really has to be navigated on that basis. And you have to sort of try not to get caught up in trying to figure out the very best use of a day or a week or a moment of time and think instead, like, does this feel like a good use? Because if you focus on that best question, you're going to be going through endless calculations again, trying to get on top of an infinite number of choices. But I think most of us do know, like if you're sort of interrupted in the middle of a a Saturday afternoon or something, and you were asked, like, you basically where you should be here on the planet at this moment or not. I think that is something that people have an intuitive connection to. The uh, 25 goal thing that you mentioned comes, well, it's attributed, I think, wrongly to Warren Buffett. But the idea is that if you make a list of your sort of goals for your life and rank them in order, and there's 25 items on that list, which is a lot, he suggests that you should focus on the top five and then avoid the bottom 20 like the plague, as opposed to sort of getting around to them if you get a moment. Those are actually the kind of goals that you care about, but you don't care that much about. And those are kind of dangerous, right? Because they are the things that will lure you into spending time on them, but not actually be sufficiently important to you to be worth 
spending time on. So like I'm in no danger of spending any of my time on like underwater caving, you know, because I have literally no desire ever to do that in my whole life. But it is possible that I would get lured away from, you know, an evening with my wife and son or an evening with a really close friend in order to sort of like, I don't know, go to some meeting of an organization that I was really into a couple of years ago, but now it seems like a bit pointless, but I still keep going because it's kind of okay. And, you know, those kind of middle ground things are really worth steering clear of. Something else I find really liberating is this thing that's known in, I guess, economics, I'm not sure, as Fredkin's paradox, which is this idea that when you're trying to choose between two things to do, and they both seem like they could be really good. So like, I don't know, maybe you've got a week's holiday and you're trying to figure out what to do with it with your kids. And you've got two options. They both seem like that would be really important for your kids and their enjoyment and their development. But so would this other option. We find those choices very agonizing, right? Because it seems like they're both really good choices. But Fredkin's paradox, is not sure it's technically a paradox. This is the point that like, actually, by definition, if those two choices feel like they're both incredibly good, then to that extent, it doesn't matter which one you choose, right? You feel that it really matters because they both are so valuable. But in fact, if they're both so valuable, there's a very, very low probability of making any choice that won't turn out to be a meaningful use of that time. So there are times in life when tossing a coin is the right way to decide between options for what to do. But as I say, I do think at the end of the day, part of what I'm maybe trying to do in this book is just clear away a whole lot of mistakes that I think we make trying to calculate, trying to fit things in, trying to strategize the best life. And what remains, I hope, when some of that is cleared away is just that sort of more intuitive sense that the thing you're doing, I have a memory, a recent memory of just sort of filling up and throwing water balloons, water bombs with my son in the backyard uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, didn't really plan it didn't take a lot of strategy. I can't convince myself that this is helping develop some very important skill for the future or anything like that. But I was aware in that moment, I did have one of those moments of like, oh, I'm in the right place on the planet here doing this now with him. That's being a good father. I don't mean to give the impression that I don't spend much more time neurotically wondering if I'm being a good father, but that was a a moment where you're just like, oh yeah, I know that. It doesn't need to be part of some system of productivity or of time organization. It's just sort of felt and obvious in those moments. Just those moments, isn't it? Of just, like you say, that often they're spontaneous, often they're unplanned, just that pure connection. Of course, that's what our children need. And the decision-making thing I think is really important because I thought that I had a lot of decisions to make in my life and then I became a parent. Oh my days, oh my days. It's from day one, right? Are you going to drink? Are you going to do that? Thousands upon thousands of decisions. And I think if you are the sort of person who has a tendency to overthink, procrastinate, think there's a perfect answer and it's your job to find it, parenting will literally kill you, right? Yes, right. I was just going to say, linked to what you were saying, that's how I have not died from the number of decisions to make as a parent, is just being like, I'm just going to make a decision and trust that I'm going to get a set of experiences that might help me make a better decision next time. This reminds me of something that has always been a big issue for me, not just since I became a father, but really all the way along, is like a certain kind of person, a bit neurotic, a bit control freaky, a bit wanting to do right, all the rest of it, has really great difficulty with the idea of crossing bridges when you come to them. So the implication, and this is kind of, I'm speaking very, this is definitely me, 
I write a bit in the book and I wrote a piece in The Guardian about like parenting advice books and how much they sort of screw us up basically, or some of them do. And what I was, I think I was zeroing in on there is a certain kind of person wants to sort of have it all figured out to start with. So it's like what you're going to do if you have a newborn baby or you have a kid going to secondary school or whatever it is, is you're going to figure out everything about how to do it right. And then you're just going to like implement that plan. And of course, it never works because everything changes all the time and children more visibly and obviously change every like the moment you figure out how to be a good parent in a certain phase, they're into the next phase and it doesn't matter that you were good at the last phase. And it's an extraordinary exercise. I think it comes from wanting to control our time, right? Which is this feeling that I'm tracking throughout the book, this idea that you want to be like, okay, from here, this my vantage point in the present, I can be pretty confident about how it's all going to unfold for the next year or 18 months or something. And that will cause constant anxiety and stress because you can't actually control even the next moment of the future. So you're constantly sort of like trying to bring under your control something that you can't bring under your control. And the solution, been much more easily said than done for me in my life, of course, is like you do what seems like the next right thing now, to quote Carl Jung or Anna from Frozen, and you trust yourself that in the next moment when the next thing comes up and you need to adapt to that thing, you'll have the resources that you have now to deal with that issue then. And that makes the kinds of decisions you're talking about, I think, a lot easier because it's like, with a few exceptions, and there are exceptions, but with a few exceptions, it really is just a question of like, you could correct course later on. You don't have to stick with that preschool or that approach to how you read with your kid or that approach to how you think about cooking their food or something. Like You do what seems right and you trust yourself that like in a week's time or a year's time, you can alter course. I find it such a relief to remember that like you never have any responsibility to any time other than this moment. Like you have to do the thing that is the best thing you're capable of doing now. But next week is none of your business, really. It will be impacted by what you do now, but you only ever have to figure out what's the best thing you can come up with now. I'm so glad that we've got to control and talk about it because, you know, I work with thousands of mothers and I speak to, I mean, I'm just constantly speaking to mothers about what they find hard about their lives. And what I see is this really strong red thread of control. And so I've thought a lot about control. And I think control for me is about wanting to feel safe. In a way, it makes it sense, right? Because our brain is actually wired for predictability and for safety. So we sort of make that calculation, miscalculation, that if I can control everything, somehow I'll be safe and my kids will be safe because our brains hate uncertainty and they hate what you and I are suggesting, which is, can you trust a little bit more? Everything in our brains, right, is going to wrestle that idea down to the ground. How have you made the shift from self-proclaimed control freak to into more of this intuitive, trusting, present self? Well, firstly, it's a work in progress and it's all easier said than done. And I don't want to imply that like, if you grasp it intellectually, then suddenly your life is totally different from that moment forever. But I have got a bit better at it, I think. And for me, it comes from a certain kind of perspective shift, which is maybe because I'm a bit of a pessimistic person or a sort of glass half empty person by temperament. But for me, it's always really helpful not to go in the direction of saying like, 
know you can trust yourself, have confidence, do better. Like you've got what it takes, not that kind of like raising your mood and trying to encourage yourself to let go of control. But actually, where my mind wants to go is into really perceiving and seeing how futile <laughs> the quest for control is. So, this is a kind of negative approach, which is very close to my heart for whatever messed up reason. But, like, I want to say, for me, the way to sort of trust in myself in the moment more has been to more fully understand that the alternative is a mugs game, that it doesn't work. That if you try to exert control over time as it unfolds, all that will happen is you'll be more stressed by the fact that events keep happening regardless of your intentions. I think you can actually think about what is going on when you worry about something. It's like your mind is trying to get reassurance out of the future, right? It's trying to say like, I want to make sure that I know that it's going to be okay tomorrow. And really understanding, it's pretty kind of philosophical argument in a way, but really understanding that like, you're never going to get reassurance out of the future because it's in the future is <laughs> really powerful for me. There's some phrase, I'm going to misquote it, but there's a phrase that's very central to Buddhist philosophy, which is something like, not knowing is the only refuge or doubt is the only safe place or something like this. It's like, there is a huge, for me, relaxation and relief that comes from just seeing like, oh, this is how it is. Like, this is how it's always going to be. My job is just to like navigate that as gracefully as I can and do what seems right and cool and interesting or meaningful, or whatever, in that context, rather than seeing it as my job to kind of eliminate the facts of the situation. And for me, that's a lot more relaxing than trying to sort of, you know, look at myself in the mirror every morning and say, I've got what it takes. I can trust myself today because that like needs constant replenishment. Whereas, just like falling back down to the ground and being like, okay, this is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. So now I can roll up my sleeves and get on with something. And I guess what you're talking to is like central to, you know, almost every religion and spirituality that there is out there, which is that we can't control. And the route to peace is acceptance. Someone said to me once, you know, the three most spiritual words that you'll ever hear is, I don't know. Because it's that ego part of us that wants to control and conflate and think that every decision is so important. And, you know, I have to achieve all these things. And if I don't do this, this is, you know, that's all sort of that ego thinking, isn't it? Whereas actually spirituality has so much to teach us, I think, about none of that really matters. And actually you're not that important. I find that idea the most freeing idea ever. Some people hate it, right? They hate the idea that they're not important. I absolutely love it. I'm like, I am not important. It doesn't mean that I don't want to do meaningful work. I think I do with this podcast. But for me, I'm the same. I have this tendency to stress and pressure and having to get it right and control. That's the way that I'm wired. And I know why that is, blah, blah, blah. So this idea that actually, so it's not that important. Oh, it's a balm for me. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and I, I have this whole chapter on like what I call cosmic insignificance therapy and why I think that's so relaxing as a message. I think it's worth saying on that and on the previous thing we were discussing, it is about acceptance and it is about surrender, 100%. But it's worth maybe reassuring people as well. Sometimes I think this gets misinterpreted as the idea that you just need to accept that you're going to have a mediocre life or it's about being passive. Alternatively, some people may say, well, like, it's all very well. I see the point, but like, 
I'm just relentlessly nagged to do things or people make me feel guilty if I don't do these things. I can't let go in that way. Something I'm always at pains to try to stress is I do think that seeing the truth about how these demands are impossible, how controlling the future is impossible, all the rest of the stuff we're talking about, it's actually the precondition for doing a lot of stuff, for like living a really accomplished life, for achieving your goals, for being a sort of exceptional parent or, or anything else. You know, even if you're unfortunate enough to be in a position where just like working in a job you dislike and getting through the day really is the only option for you, there's still more peace of mind in understanding the reality that it's impossible to do impossible things. I don't think anyone should listen to this and think, well, that's fine, but I want to like accomplish really cool things in my life because I think this is like the path to accomplishing really cool things in your life. I agree as well that this idea of acceptance is really misunderstood, I think, because people are like, what, we should just accept all the ills of the world. There wouldn't be any activism if we were all just around it. And that isn't my experience of it at all. My experience of this is that when I was living that life of control and, as you say, projecting worry and trying to micromanage everything and living in fear, that used up so much of my mental energy that I couldn't actually focus on what I wanted to do and the good stuff. And when I was able to accept, ah, this person is the way that they are, ah, this is the way that I am. Ah, this is how many hours I have in a day. That freed me up, as you're describing, to do things like start this podcast. Right. And the classic example in sort of self-help books and stuff, the good self-help books is, oh, does acceptance mean that if you're in a toxic or abusive relationship, you should remain in it? It's like, no, acceptance means stopping avoiding the truth of what things are like in that relationship. And that might well be exactly the motivation to leave it, it can absolutely be essential for change rather than some kind of barrier to change. People think, well, why do I need any help in seeing that things are as they are? That's just like, of course, I know that things are as they are. But actually, premise of my book, the premise of like probably the whole of depth psychology and, and psychotherapy on some level is that we put a lot of energy into not feeling the truth of the way things are, whether that's being in a toxic relationship or just like how little time we have in a day. Every time you make a to-do list that by the end of the day, you laugh at because of course you were never going to get through 10% of it. That happens because you aren't willing in some level to see the way that things actually are. And that it's always helpful to get a little bit better at seeing the way that things actually are, in my opinion. A quick word from our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. I realized the other day that I have been taking AG1 every morning for a year now. It's become such a non-negotiable way that I look after myself and remind myself that I am worth looking after. If I want to be the best mother that I can be, then I can only do that by looking after my energy and health. AG1 is super simple, easy, and in each scoop, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Very important, athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to the episode. I think denial and awareness are like 
I don't think you can talk about one without talking about the other. And I get why we do it. Of course, it's like, I want to deny the reality that I'm only going to be able to do so many things in my life, that I'm not going to be able to be the best podcaster in the world and the best parent in the world. That's a really sad reality for me that I don't want to accept. I want to avoid that because there's going to be some grief and some feelings and some resistance. Do you think it's the human condition to want to resist those uncomfortable feelings about just accepting life on life's terms? Absolutely. I think that is the sort of the core situation, right? Is that we are this kind of probably essentially unique species in that we are as animal and material and perishable as anything else, but we have this capacity to sort of think about our lives and our time and project forwards and sort of dream about what we want to do or what we feel we ought to do in order to be good parents or anything like that. So there's this mismatch between our real limitations and our capacity to sort of conceive of limitlessness. And so we're constantly trying to find ways to paper that over and not think about it. Now, I think the modern world makes it a lot easier to do that. Digital distractions and the way that the economic system and consumerism feed into this all sort of encourage us even further to not consciously feel what it's like to be these finite humans. But I think it's probably basically a timeless characteristic that we have. And the great irony, of course, is that although it is uncomfortable to come back to that reality, it is actually the path to living the most meaningful life that you can. So the thing that you think you're solving by avoiding the situation is actually best addressed by acknowledging the situation. And then, you know, it is possible to sort of, yeah, to shift your perspective into a place where you're no longer thinking like, well, if I have to do all these 10,000 things by the end of today. Otherwise, I'm, I haven't met the minimum standard as a good parent or something, which is just to make your life feel impossible for no benefit. There's lots of this in the book, and I imagine you've done lots of thinking about it outside the words in the book as well. What have you discovered about why we have this drive to do, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve? What is that about? Because we didn't used to be like that, right? And we're not born like that. So where does that adaptation happen? I think that doing and especially using time as efficiently as possible, I spoke just before about how not wanting to face the reality of our situation is probably a sort of universal and timeless human experience. But the modern way that we think about time, really like since the Industrial Revolution, we think about time as like a resource. So there's you and there's time and you've got to like win the battle with time or you feel like time is hounding you or maybe you want to try to be the master of your time. All of these things have this kind of notion that there's you and then there's time and it's probably in control of you, but you've got to like win back the upper hand against time. And I've got this whole bit in the book about how I think it's highly likely anyway, that sort of medieval peasants, for example, despite having absolutely terrible lives in almost all respects, wouldn't have been able to conceive of time in this way. Like there's me and there's time. And then I've got to make the best use of the time. Like this is not something that occurs to a small scale farmer who has never seen a clock or a watch and who kind of gets up when the sun rises and goes and milks the cows or whatever, right? In those lifestyles, certain historically, you are at one with time, like you sort of just are time in a way that I think makes a lot of sense, although it's quite hard to express. There isn't this sense of like you and then the yardstick that's running alongside your life and you've got to keep up with it and fit enough things into it and all of that. So 
Although I think all of that comes ultimately from this sense of not wanting to acknowledge that we are limited and mortal and finite, modern ways of thinking about time make it a lot tougher. And then I think much more recently, sort of changes in the economy and things like that lead to this wild situation where even if you do really well in life, like by the standards of the world, you get busier. This would have made no sense to somebody four or five centuries ago, right? The idea that if you're privileged to have or fortunate to have wealth or be promoted into a senior job or something, that you then have less time to enjoy yourself, right? It's crazy when you think about it. And what's the link between self-worth? Because I think that is another big difference, isn't it? From, you know, you were talking about back in the day, there wouldn't have been this link between, am I achieving enough? Am I okay? How does that sort of question of enoughness drive us? And I see this in mothers all the time. No, I have to do this. I have to do this. And I'm like, what is under that? And 99% of the time, it's like, I don't feel enough if my house isn't tidy, if I don't get a promotion, if my kids aren't eating only organic, if I'm feeding them, I don't feel enough. Yeah, no, this goes very deep for me, like in my background and stuff as well. I guess there was a whole conversation about when that came to be. And I think it would probably have to play into sort of questions about the decline of religion and where people are getting their sense of being valued from, or alternatively, and additionally, times in history when huge demographics of society would have been taught from birth that they were not worth anything. And it's just sort of total oppression. The thing I'm really struck by is you have this very sort of ironic sense that like we feel that we have to do an unlimited amount or more than we can do or better than we can do it. But then we feel we need to do all that just to reach a minimum standard of adequacy, right? So it isn't that you feel you've got to do those hundred things for your children's lives this month because then you'd be like the best parent. It's like, no, then you get a seat at the table of acceptable parents. And I've written elsewhere before, it's like we wake up in the morning and we feel like we're in debt and we've got to pay off our debt of things to do and tasks to cross off the list. And if we're lucky, you might get to the evening and be at like zero balance again. You might have got back to baseline adequacy. And it's a very punishing way to live. I think that the economic system has a strong interest in that because consumerism does not thrive by making people feel that if they make one purchase, then that's enough and they can stop and not make any more to feel there's got to be that sort of constant dissatisfaction and constant sort of hole that needs filling. But I think the thing that I'm always saying about that is it's at least possible to play with the idea, which has a long history in sort of Christian theology, especially that you're enough just by being here, that you're sort of justified through being on the planet to begin with, and that everything you do get around to doing for your kids, say, over the course of today, is extra in some sense. Now, it might be essential, some of it, like you've got to feed them, otherwise really bad things are going to happen. But that sort of moral self-worth piece takes a lot of thinking about and journaling and therapy for people to make these shifts. But like, you can at least sort of experiment with that thought, like, what if I don't need to do anything today at all? in that deepest existential sense of the word need. What if I would still count as an acceptable human being if I did nothing? Or let's say nothing except heat up some fish fingers and pour some water into a glass because your kids probably do need some form of food in a day. And then you can sort of glimpse this way of being and sometimes sort of feel more fully into it where 
you then do a whole lot of other stuff because you want to, because it's fun, because you like the fact that your kids benefit from it, not because like you're scrambling back up to this baseline. One of the things I've talked about in the past for that is like this idea of keeping a done list, right? So along with your to-do lists and your task systems and whatever you do, just keep a list of the things you actually do after you do them that gets longer through the day so that at least, you know, at the end of the day, you can be like, look, this was a ton of stuff because it is so easy for people trapped in that sort of self-worth trap to just literally forget by 6 p.m. the 80 things they already did that day that all made a difference to their lives or their kids' lives or their families' lives. I feel like this is just so core to everything, really, that what we're talking about. I feel like, like you say, we couldn't possibly touch on the depth of it in this conversation. But I do think as parents, we have a bit of a, an advantage in some way. Because when my babies were born, the love that I felt for them, although it took me a little bit of time, but the deep love that I felt for them was not based on how much they achieved in their day. Their worth was innate. I've used that experience. I'm like, ah, okay. So that must be true for me too. Because we're the same. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Must be true for me too. I think this is such an important point that we're touching on. And and there's no way we could ever get to the depths of it because it's life-changing at this point. But I think as parents, we have a cheat. Because when my girls were born, the love that I felt for them was not based on what they were achieving or what they were doing or how well they were doing something, or what they could tick off on their to-do list. The love that I felt for them was just for who they are. And it was a bit of a life-changing moment for me because I realized, ah, the same is true for me then, that my worth just being on this planet is innate. It must be true because that is what I feel for them. They haven't done anything. In fact, what they've done is made my life harder in many ways. And yet I adore them for just the essence of them. So the same must be true for me. It's such a great point. In the book, I speak briefly about how this idea of hope and how it's difficult for people involved in sort of environmental activism, say, and some other areas to be like, how do you keep up hope when everything seems like it's bad? And I quote one activist who says like, well, I, you don't need hope. You look after the habitats of wild salmon because you love wild salmon. And he makes the analogy like, you know, it comes naturally to not say of a child that like, you're loving them and spending time with them and feeding them and helping them grow because you expect the quid pro quo of them being a, an incredibly high achieving adult. You may have that hope. And I think that hope definitely sort of gets involved in family dynamics and causes all sorts of issues. But at the baseline, most people can connect back to that feeling that like, it doesn't matter. And so, yeah, I think that is a model for what it means to be motivated by love rather than by hope or by the need to reach some sort of level of achievement. And then it's just so obvious, isn't it, anyway, that so much of what you do as a parent, I suspect this is sort of in some sense even truer of mothers, but there isn't some secret that was only just discovered about some specific actions you have to take in order to provide the best nurturing environment for children, right? There is genuinely a sense, without getting too sort of evolutionary psychology about it, there is genuinely a sense in which these things come naturally and in which what you feel motivated to do by your love for your kids is almost in normal situations is kind of like there's wisdom encapsulated in that. And it's probably just hanging out with them. And it's probably just being there and giving them your attention. And it doesn't need you to sort of get on top of a huge body of knowledge that's going to 
reveal the secret of what to do. Again, it's like trusting yourself, I suppose. Mm, and I love that you talked about being motivated by love. And in a way, that feels like the sort of crescendo of this idea, really, because I used to be so motivated by fear. And that what was driving my desire for productivity and achieving. And it's not enough, and I need to do more, and I'm not enough. And I think making that small shift, which I guess you've made, and I'm trying to make too, what if I could come more from that place of presence and love? It doesn't mean that I don't achieve, which I think is where people sometimes get a bit confused with the idea. I've achieved way more since I've started and I've achieved things that are way more meaningful, like this platform that I'm I'm working on. And I think it's such a hard leap to make. It's not easy, but even 1% down that path makes life easier. Absolutely. I only disagree with the notion that what you said at the beginning of that, that I somehow made this shift. I think it is a constant for a certain kind of person anyway. It sort of constantly needs remaking. And in fact, there's a funny tendency of people who are sort of high achieving and fear-oriented or all the kind of things that we've been talking about to then try to be perfectionistic about making this kind of change as well, holding themselves to very high standards there. But absolutely, there are no downsides to this. And that's the thing that it's hard to believe at the beginning of that process of change, right? That you could possibly trust yourself or that you can afford to unclench a bit or let your shoulders drop a bit. It seems like Either something very bad would happen or you would have to feel feelings that would be intolerable to feel. And that's what's not the case. And that's why sort of edging into it a little bit is very illuminating. It is the case a bit though, I think, because when we do intentionally slow a little, your feelings catch up with you. For sure. A massive benefit of busyness and headless chicken and hamster wheeling is that you don't have to feel the sometimes crawl out of your body pain of something that you've been trying to avoid. But then, of course, on the other side is the freedom. But you have to walk through that fire, right? Yes. Although I think there can be a sort of freedom in that willingness to feel that you don't necessarily have to just sort of endure it. No, what I want to say there, there may be sort of exceptions to how you do this for people who have sort of histories of severe trauma and things. But basically, in my experience, it's not that those feelings that catch up with you are nice. It's that you come to see that you were afraid they would somehow destroy you. And that if you felt them, it would be a disaster. And that's what's not true. Just on a very, very simple level, for example, I feel like impatience is a big example of this, right? People who are trying to sort of stay in control and get in control of life get very impatient when things aren't moving as fast as they feel that they need to move in order to get through everything. And if you just sort of lean into that occasionally and sort of let yourself feel the frustration of having to wait for something or being stuck in traffic or whatever it might be. It's really extraordinary because you suddenly realize that like the discomfort associated with that is it's almost negligible. I'm giving a very minor example, I know, but it's like part of what makes people so frustrated in those situations is I think the feeling that if they let themselves just feel, okay, this is moving slower than I had thought it would, that this would be like a terrible kind of discomfort. And it isn't, it's just a bit annoying and like, that's fine. What was really important for you through either modeling or teaching your son about time and a meaningful life? Oh, gosh. Now you put me on the spot, right? I've gone for the big question at the end. Also, you you isolate the place in my entire life where I'm like, I don't feel confident that I'm doing this well at all. I'll talk around and feel free to push back if you think I'm finding ways to evade the question. One of the things I notice 
in this is another way in which kids are helpful for oneself as well i suppose i do notice certain ways in which he sometimes articulates attitudes towards time that are definitely me but i kind of wish they weren't they belong more to the old me than the than the new me so he was only like I mean, he's only 5 but he's been very interested in sort of the timings and schedules of things and how long things are going to take and when something's going to happen relative to something else. So from quite a young age, which is, you know, not necessarily stressing about them. I think I've avoided so far sort of inculcating my former extreme time anxiety in him. But he often asks things about how the day is going to unfold that I don't dismiss. And sometimes I just answer with what I know. But they're also sometimes an opportunity I think to, in a gentle way to sort of be like, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. It's a good question, but we don't have the answer right now or something like that. But in those moments, I'm teaching myself far more than him because like, I don't think he's necessarily bothered by his question. He's just curious. <laughs> and I'm trying, therefore, I suppose, to model and inculcate in myself, like not going along with where my mind wants to go in response to that, which is sort of trying to sort of schedule out the day to within an inch of its life. And I'm also trying to find that very difficult midpoint or synthesis or something between I'm available to him, he has my attention. If what's happening right now is that I'm working in the apartment, we're in my American apartment right now, but we've basically moved. And so it's confusing. But wherever we are, if I'm working at home, I want to be available to him, but I also want him to to some extent respect the idea that what I'm doing is something else right now and I'll be with him later and somebody else is the person to talk to right now. And it's like that very difficult. My tendency would definitely be to be totally rigid about it and be totally dismayed by any interruption. I've thought a lot about this concept of interruptions recently. And there's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis, I think it is, who points out that like what we call interruptions from our real life largely just are our lives, right? They're the things that life is bringing us. And I don't want to have an approach to time that defines him rushing in from school to tell me about his day as a bad thing, just because I'd drawn some stupid little boxes on a hour by hour schedule that said I was going to be writing at that moment. Like you don't want to turn good things about family life into problems because they clash with your plan. On the other hand, <laughs> I do need some kind of plan or I'm never going to get anything done and uh, there's not going to be the food on the table that uh, he needs. So it's like navigating that is very interesting for me. And he's just getting to the age where it does feel like encouraging him to see that right now I have a different priority than exactly what he wants me to do in that moment. But that sometimes is valuable and good. And that's a good lesson. Obviously, with a two-year-old, that's not going to fly. But of course, I don't want to be like, no, I've got a schedule and your enthusiasms and excitements aren't allowed until the scheduled time. That would be absolutely terrible. It's like so many things, isn't it? For me, the answer is nearly always the middle, the gray. Sometimes there's going to be the rigidity, right? No, this is really important. Like right now, my kids know not to come in the room because I'm live, right? If I was sat here bashing through emails, the door would be open and it would be cool if they came in here, you know? And then the other side is, I love the idea of taking that word interruptions out maybe and just calling it life. And I think going back to what we were saying throughout the, the whole conversation really is that just takes that idea of control away. Like, actually, I cannot control interruptions. Like, your phone went through this. You know, my phone could have gone through this. I could have had an... And accepting that, there is definitely a freedom in that. There is definitely a freedom in it for me. That it's just life. And 
Yeah, the rigidity is what causes the stress, right? Well, it does for me. Absolutely. It's that need to have things go a certain way. And then even when they do go your way, there's that constant like anticipation of like, are they going to go my way in the next moment? I quote the spiritual teacher Krishnamurti who said that the secret of his peace of mind was, I don't mind what happens. <laughs> and as maybe is taking things a bit far, there's lots to be said about what that means. But I do think that that broad attitude of being like, okay, curiosity, let's see how the next hour goes. This will be interesting. Let's see what happens with this next bit of the day, as opposed to here's how I really need it to go. And I'm going to do whatever I can to sort of force it that way. And I'm going to, in the meantime, worry about whether it's all going to go right or not. Yeah, that's wisdom. For sure. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? This word gift is very broad, isn't it? Because it's like, I don't know. It's like on the one level, to new mothers, it would be a little thing that costs about 15 pounds on Amazon, which is like abrasive so that you can sort of grind away your newborn baby's fingernails without having to cut them, which is one of the most traumatizing things that I had to try to confront as a new father was trying to use a, a nail clipper when you can actually get these things that just sort of sand them down. But that's a really mundane <laughs> uh, response. I think it would be that sort of insight that we talked about earlier that you only have to figure out what to do in the next moment, that you can let go to a certain extent of all these projections about where things are heading, whether you're on the right course, whether you're doing the right things for your child's future. Those matter and goals and plans and books of parenting advice can matter, but they all only matter insofar as they help you make a slightly wiser decision now. And the rest of that future is like literally none of your business. And that is, I find that anyway, so liberating. So hopefully some people listening might also. Well, I find it liberating. So if it's just you and me, then there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved this conversation. I didn't know where we were going to go with it. And I loved some of the ideas that we touched on. And I know they will definitely help, definitely help lots of my audience. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. There were some questions that made me think and feel in there. So I'm really grateful for that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 